please open your copy of God's Word to the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to John. We've had quite an extended break from our study of John's Gospel. Uh, We left off in chapter 7, verse 52, back in November, before the Thanksgiving and Advent season, and we will return to our walk through John today. Uh, One of the many reasons I prefer teaching through books of the Bible as a regular practice for the church is that it forces us to deal with difficult passages instead of passing them over at the preacher's convenience. It's not that the story of the woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus on its own is difficult to understand. In fact, it may be one of the easiest stories to understand, as it paints a glorious picture of God's mercy in Jesus triumphing over judgment. And we will talk more of God's mercy in Christ towards the end of the sermon. But first, I want to address what does make this passage a difficult one. What makes it difficult are the obvious questions that rise from whether this story originally belonged to John's gospel at all. Please hear me say up front that whether this passage belongs to Scripture does not negate God's truthfulness or His mercy in Christ. I hope to address both of those subjects this morning, but I refuse to leave us naive to the fact that nearly all modern English translations separate this story from the rest of John's gospel with uh, double brackets, as you see the ESV does. There, beginning in verse 53 and ending in verse 11. Or, other English translations relegate the entire story to a footnote. The two exceptions to this are the King James and the New King James versions, which don't account for the oldest manuscript evidence discovered since the printing of Erasmus's Greek New Testament in 1516. That's not a knock against the King James or the New King James versions, but only to point out the difference. Based on the earliest manuscript evidence, most English translations do not see this story as part of John's Gospel. In fact, the ESV Study Bible, which in my judgment is one of the is is the best study Bible out there, (laughs) representing the judgment of ninety five evangelical scholars and pastors, makes this comment on the text before us. There is considerable doubt that this story is part of John's original gospel. For it is absent from all the oldest manuscripts, it seems best to view the story as something that probably happened during Jesus' ministry, but that was not originally part of what John wrote in his gospel. Therefore, it should not be considered as part of Scripture and should not be used as the basis for building any point of of, of doctrine unless confirmed in Scripture." That judgment is true of many solid evangelical scholars who have weighed through the historical 
that are brothers and sisters who can, fa- who can confess the same statement of faith that we do on the authority and inerrancy and trustworthiness of the Bible. Brothers like, and some of you might have read some of their books, D.A. Carson at Trinity Evangelical or Andreas Kostenberger who teaches at one of our own Southern Baptist seminaries, Southeastern. And you need to know that I agree with their conclusions. The reasons for drawing this conclusion, this conclusion usually goes something like this. Number one, the story of the woman caught in adultery does not appear in the earliest manuscript copies of John's Gospel until the 5th century A.D. Number two, when the story does appear in those later manuscripts, it does so in seven different places that we know of now. Either after verse 36 of chapter 7, or after verse 44, or verse 52, like it is in most of your Bibles, or after chapter 8, verse 12, or at the end of John's Gospel altogether, or in a couple of places in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 21, verse 38, chapter 24, verse 53. So even when it does appear later, it's fairly unstable. Third, when the earliest church fathers give their commentary on the Gospel of John, like Origen, for example, their commentary moves straight from verse 52 of chapter 7 right into chapter 8, verse 12, which suggests that their manuscripts likely did not contain it. Fourth, chapter 7 flows right into chapter 8 without this story present. And I'll take it that way next week as a whole. Uh, because I, th- I think the whole of chapter 8 is actually uh, Jesus confronting the Jewish crowds still at the Feast of Tabernacles. No, no day has further passed. And then number five, the style and vocabulary in this story is much different than what you find throughout the rest of John's Gospel, implying it belongs to someone else. So those are the reasons why the double brackets or the footnote exists in your English Translations. Now what this does is give me an opportunity to address the transmission of Holy Scripture. That is, how God's Word came to us through various copies over the centuries and help you see that what you hold in your hands is in fact God's trustworthy Word insofar as it represents the original inspired text. So we're about to get somewhat technical, and some of you are going to feel like we're in a classroom for the next 15 minutes. Some of you probably feel like you're in a classroom every week that I preach. Um, But I am doing this so that your faith isn't rocked like mine was when my skeptical professor in college used a text like this one to try to undermine the Christian faith. It's one thing for various critics to challenge the authority of Scripture through uh, things like historical objections, like whether these books are just a bunch of forgeries, or uh, logical objections, like whether Matthew's Gospel contradicts Mark's Gospel, or whether Jesus' teachings contradict Paul's teachings, or uh, moral objections 
like whether God is right to annihilate a city like Sodom or bring a city like Jericho to destruction. These are all objections to the authority of God's Word because they all strike at whether the words of Scripture are actually true. And at the time, I could handle most of those objections and give reasonable answers to each one. But what totally blindsided me in college was my professor's textual objection. Namely, whether we have the words of Holy Scripture at all. You see, most objections to the Christian faith at least grant you the Bible. But he was attempting to take away even that. What he was arguing was that a passage like the one we're dealing with today, where there's great uncertainty about whether it belongs to John, was actually just one illustration among thousands upon thousands of others that created uncertainty about the entirety of the New Testament documents. He was arguing, and there's a very zealous, popular scholar nowadays who's arguing the same thing. His name is Bart Ehrman, and you may be familiar with one of his books, Misquoting Jesus, New York Times bestsellers, and he's got three more out there. All three of those are also New New York Times bestsellers. But my professor and this neighbor... Bart Ehrman, argue what good is it to talk about the Bible and what the Bible says is true when we don't know which words ultimately belong to it and which words do not. In other words, why, why bother with whether the Bible is true if we can't even discern the Bible, where, where, what the Bible is from the manuscripts we have? And that objection can really rock your faith five years after you're converted. And if it doesn't rock your faith in a classroom setting, it, like it did mine, are we not all faced with it at some point in our times of devotional reading through the Scripture? Yes, yes, we trust that the Lord has preserved His Word over all, but are we not at least somewhat discomforted by these sorts of comments we find in, our mar- in the margins of our, of our Bibles? Or even in something like the women's Bible study last year? I mean, Kathleen Nielsen takes the same position on this text as the ESV study Bible does. As as y'all were using her guide to walk through the Gospel John. And she passes right over it without further comment. Isn't there at least something inside of you that wonders, what am I supposed to do with that? What does that mean for everything else I'm holding in my hands? And some of you may have even had questions leap into your mind when we were in chapter 5 and dismissed verse 4 of chapter 5, since it was absent from the earliest and best manuscripts of the New Testament. How can you do that, right? And moreover, I imagine a number of you have encountered some skeptical unbeliever or zealous atheist in your personal evangelism efforts, and he's raised this very objection about the reliability of our New Testament text. It happened to me last Thursday morning. 
So, as a way to equip you to answer some of these questions, I want to give you a basic framework for thinking about the transmission of the New Testament and about how variant readings like this one do not mean that everything in the Bible is up for grabs. Hopefully this will help you deal more adequately with the objections from the world as well as doubts that arise within you or that have troubled you before. First of all, we need to remember that the historic Christian faith has limited divine inspiration and with that authority, inerrancy, and trustworthiness, they have limited that to the original manuscripts. When historic Christianity has read the scriptures, they have come to the conclusion that the Bible itself, God's Word, limits divine inspiration to the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. In our own statement of faith as a church, when we deny that any portion of Scripture is marked by error or the effects of human sinfulness, we mean that for the inspired text represented by the original manuscripts. The original manuscripts are also called the autographs, which is more so a reference to the first divinely approved transcription that uh, left the desk of the prophets and apostles, so to speak. If you want the scripture verses for that, you can, of that conclusion right there on the screen that you see, you can look at our statement of faith online and there's a block of them about that big. Along with that, we should remember that none of these original manuscripts still exist. To our knowledge, they perished very early. But as we will see, we can also say that the inspired words of these original manuscripts never perished. For every generation, God has preserved His inspired word, even if He used handwritten copies of the originals to convey His word. We know from our own Bibles that the law of Moses was copied and passed on to later generations in Israel. We know that Solomon wrote Proverbs that were then copied by the men of Hezekiah. Jesus quoted from copies of the law and the prophets and the writings as he taught his disciples. And the apostles quoted from copies of the Old Testament and each other's writings and teaching the church. And I bring that up simply to say that we need not have the original page, so to speak, of John's gospel, of Paul's letter, to prove we have the word of God. Even God's own word shows that a copy of the original manuscript can convey God's authoritative message quite accurately and sufficiently. Of course, there are also curses in the Bible that forbid any kind of copying that would misrepresent the words of the inspired originals, but that also further clarified how the copies were to be observed. Insofar as the copy represented the original faithfully, it was to be heeded as the holy word of God. So having the physical page of an original gospel or letter is unnecessary as long as we have the original text preserved in the copies. But here's where matters get more complicated, because there are a plethora of manuscript copies of the New Testament. And just to give you an idea, 
among the manuscript copies of the New Testament, there are 128 papyri. That's the, uh, the oldest and earliest that we have, made from the woven papyrus and written on. There are 322 majuscules. Those are the, basically the Greek copies of the Greek New Testament written in all caps, capital letters. There are 2,926 minuscules, that's the same thing written in lowercase, and 2,462 lectionaries. That is, uh, those would be selected portions of the New Testament that were used in the re- uh, corporate readings, like in a worship service. And all of these come to a total of 5,838 manuscripts. You can even view some of these online. If you go to the Center for the Study of, of uh, New Testament Manuscripts, which is run by Dan Wallace of DTS, he has got images, they, they're amazing, images that you can just look at online and access. So the Center for the, New, for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, if you want to see some of these. And that's not mentioning the additional help that we get from ancient translations of the New Testament or from the over one million quotations of the New Testament found peppered throughout the writings of the church fathers. Dan Wallace of DTS gives us this picture that if a manuscript, a Greek manuscript of antiquity was two and a half inches thick, All of the copies of the average Greek author, authors like uh, Livy and Tacitus and Herodotus, all of those copies would stack up to about four feet high, while the New Testament manuscripts would stack up over a mile high. Now, historically speaking, that's really incredible. To ha- that we have such an abundance of copies of the New Testament, providentially speaking, I think it bears witness to God's passion to preserve His Word. But here's the complication with that abundance of manuscript copies. The majority of those copies differ here and there slightly from each other. One copy will have a reading that varies slightly from the other. And as you can imagine, the more copies that were written over time, the more variant readings that came with them, some of which do not accurately reflect the precise wording of the original inspired text. That's not to ascribe error to the original text, the autographic text, some have called it, but to the copies of the original text. Remember that even God's Word itself and get various examples, gives us a precedent for this, that insofar as the copy represented the original text faithfully, it was to be heeded as the Holy Word of God. Now that can sound alarming at first, that the copies we have of the New Testament contain so many variant readings. And skeptics like my college professor and Bart Ehrman use this to their own advantage, saying we cannot decipher which variant readings belong to the original text. They say things like, if so many variants exist between all these manuscripts, then 
Who's to say which one belongs to the original text? And let me just give you three further words, three answers to that objection. First of all, we must trust that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who promised that His Word would abide forever in Isaiah 40, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who promised that His Word will abide forever, is trustworthy, as has been demonstrated throughout redemptive history, and most pointedly in the sending of Jesus Christ and raising Him from the dead. He's not only trustworthy, He is totally able to do what He said, even through fallible human means. The transmission of the New Testament has been imperfect, But it's not the only imperfect human means God uses to convey His Word. He uses infallible... I mean, He uses fallible translations that at times need slight correction, and that's true even for the ESV. He uses fallible pastors to explain God's Word to His people, fallible theologians throughout church history who've helped formulate fallible confessions and creeds that he uses fallible human means to communicate his word shouldn't surprise any of us who know our sin and frailty. But this we can say with confidence, God is able to uphold all his promises even if fallible human means are involved. And that's true also for the preservation of his inspired word. Secondly, by God's providential control over the universe and all the processes that belong to the preservation of His Word, He never permits the copies of His Word to become so corrupt that His self-revealing message becomes indiscernible. Say that again. God is sovereign and by His providential control He never permits the copies of His Word to become so corrupt that His self-revealing message becomes indiscernible. Bart Ehrman and others like him claim that more manuscript copies equals more variance equals less certainty about the original text. But that's because Bart Ehrman forsook the faith years ago and became a skeptic of Jesus Christ and the Trinity and the Word of God itself. And he interprets all the historical data through that lens. History has to be interpreted. Historical data is always interpreted. And when you interpret the same historical data through the eyes of faith in a trustworthy and sovereign God, more manuscript copies does equal more variance. But more manuscript copies, but more manuscripts actually equals greater control over all those variants. That then leads to greater certainty about which variant represents the original text. I'll give you an example. 
If you only had two copies of John's Gospel from the same century and one contained this story and the other didn't, that'd be hard to choose. What do you do? But that's not the case at all when it comes to, our, to the majority of the copies of our New Testament. There is a multiplicity of manuscripts, 5,800 of them, more than 5,800 of them, from various centuries and traditions and geographical locations that provide further witness to which variant was more faithful to the original inspired text. That leads me to a third response to guys like Ehrman, namely, Christian scholars are usually able to determine which variant reading best represents the original text. And they do this through what's called the science of textual criticism. I think a better name for it, especially if they're believers, would be the stewardship of textual criticism because God's holy word is such a treasure to us. The only way we know God and eternal life in His Son, Jesus Christ, is through His inspired word. And so we do what we can to identify His original word wherever there are difficulties among the copies we have. Essentially, that means this. These scholars look at all the manuscript evidence, all f- over 5,800 of it. They look at all of it, and they choose the variant that best represents the original. And that usually means the earliest, the best, and the most geographically widespread. When I say geographically widespread, I mean throughout the church, wherever they were, using those manuscripts. And that variant should also fit the context and the author's style and best explain the existence of all the other variants that exist. That is easily done 99% of the time especially since the vast majority of the variants are insignificant to the meaning of the text and very easy to discern. I'm talking about variants like one-letter-off spelling mistakes, uh, the use of synonyms, uh, word order changes, which doesn't matter a whole lot in, in Greek like it does in English, or even harmonization of similar stories. This is especially true in a lot of the Gospels. Only 1% of all the thousands of variants that these skeptics like to bank on so much, only 1% of all the variants affect the meaning of a passage. And even these never call any cardinal belief of the Christian faith into question. That is, historically speaking, that is remarkable. That is remarkable, especially when you consider the transmission of Scripture over a period of 2,000 years, 1,500 of which were handwritten. So yes, skeptics out there to the many variants, but the overwhelming majority of them can be sorted out, and even those that remain difficult never contradict the Christian faith in fact, the story before us today is a prime example of how a variant like, of, of how a variant like this one, which English translations rule off, would never call any 
Christian doctrine into question. If anything, this story illustrates what the gospel teaches us about God's mercy in Jesus Christ. And from that, I think we can even see why part of the church eventually founded a home in their Bibles. Many have even believed this story to be an authentic historical account of Jesus that circulated in the church, even if it doesn't originally belong to John's gospel. And that may very well be the case. I hope it is. (laughs) I mean, you you cannot walk away without loving this story. Uh, I think John himself even tells us in chapter 21, verse 25, the very last sentence of his gospel, he says that there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So you have everything that Jesus did, historically speaking, and you have the Word of God inspired that pulled from these and included them in the Scriptures. So very well may be that Jesus did this. So it could be a historical event, but that doesn't make it a part of the originally inspired text of Scripture. But hear me now, that does not mean we lose God's mercy in Christ if this story does not carry with it the authority of Scripture. There are plenty of other places in the text that we are certain is the Holy Word of God that bear witness to God's mercy to guilty sinners. Plenty of places, numerous passages, hundreds and hundreds of verses that bear witness to God showing mercy to sinners that looks much like this story we find here of Jesus with the adulterous woman. And I want to leave you today grounded on that certainty as we reference other places in God's trustworthy word to highlight it. You've got to love the fact that Scripture is so redundant about everything it teaches. Such that even if we can't appeal to this story as authoritative, there are many other authoritative texts to which we can appeal. And they give us the assurance that God is merciful to sinners in Jesus Christ. It's just kind of a little lesson there in that. If you've got somebody building a whole doctrinal system off one text in the Bible, he's probably wrong. Scripture is redundant with everything it teaches. So I'm going to summarize what this story illustrates and then reference a few places in the Bible that actually teach the same thing. You have a woman who's caught in adultery. Someone walked in on her sleeping with another man that's not her husband. And the scribes and the Pharisees then bring her by herself. You've got to wonder where the man is. Something's going on. Scribes and Pharisees then bring her by herself into the temple and set her before all the people and the other religious authorities. And they turn to Jesus in order to trap him. What they want to, they want to try to get him to say something that's going to undermine the law of Moses. And they say, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And Jesus responds, let him who is without sin among you 
be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, will the guiltless party please stand up? And all of the woman's accusers eventually walk away, leaving only Jesus with the woman. From what we know in other places in Scripture, if anyone has the right to condemn the woman, it's Jesus who alone upheld the law faithfully and completely and to its deepest intent of love for neighbor, but he doesn't condemn her. Jesus says to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, Lord. And so Jesus responds, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. I think we see three major Bible themes illustrated here. Three themes that saturate the Bible. One is that the law of God exposes our guilt before God because of our sin and our rebellion against His Word. So the law of God exposes our guilt before God because of our sin. This woman deserves to die for her adultery, like, just like Deuteronomy 22.22 says. She is guilty and shamefully exposed, not only before the people in the temple, but before her God, namely Jesus. I think we see this point very clearly in Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. It says that uh, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. You will not stand in right relationship to God on the last day. No human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law exposes us as guilty sinners and lays us shamefully naked before God without help. The guilt is real. The shame is unbearable before the Lord. Before the searching gaze of God's word, we are undone, much like Isaiah was in chapter 6 of Isaiah when he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Or like Peter was when he stood before Jesus on the boat and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 say, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give an account. The law of God exposes us guilty before God because of our sin. Number two, where the law of God rightly condemns us for our sin, Jesus came to bear the condemnation in our place. Where the law rightly condemns us for our sin, Jesus came to bear the condemnation in our place. Jesus doesn't say to, say to the woman, neither do I condemn you, as if to wink an eye at her adultery, or even as if to undermine the law's demand that she be punished. No, Jesus doesn't condemn her because he would be condemned for her. 
the only judge who could rightly throw the first stone would become the judged one when he stood in her place on the cross. Does that not illustrate the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. To be our adultery. To be our lying. To be our laziness. To be our idolatry. To be our false worship. To be our ingratitude. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God is so merciful to guilty sinners because He has a perfect substitute for them. In fact, it's His love for guilty sinners which constrained Him to send the substitute into the world. John 3.17 says that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So this story is illustrating something here. It's true to the character of Jesus, even if it's not part of the authoritative word. This is the way, actually, God is pictured throughout the entire Bible. I've been in the prophets lately for my devotions. And this past week was Hosea. You cannot, you cannot read the first three chapters of Hosea without walking away, just with your breath taking away, at the mercy of God. For guilty sinners. Hosea is even asked to marry a woman who would eventually cheat on him, have children by another man, and sell herself into all kinds of whoredom, it says, from which Hosea is then a second time asked to rescue her And all of it is to be an illustration to God's people that despite their wretched whoredom, chasing after all kinds of other idols and false gods, that God himself will come and allure her and bring her into the wilderness again. And it says, and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, he says, you will call me my husband and I will have mercy on her who was called no mercy. And I will say to the one called not my people, you are my people. It's just breathtaking to think that this most holy God of the universe whom I've spurned and angered is so willing to turn to an adulterous nation like Israel and an adulterous man like me and show mercy. Forgiveness. Paul quotes Hosea in Romans 9 and Peter quotes Hosea in 1 Peter 2 to explain that such mercy finds its ultimate expression and fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ, His cross and His resurrection, and it comes to any one of us simply by receiving everything that He's done, simply by putting our faith in Him, giving ourselves to Him, embracing Him as our substitute and following Him as our Lord. You got adultery in your life? 
You come to Jesus, he will take it all away. That's the story of the Bible. And you will stand right before God. God is in the business of rescuing guilty adulterers like all of us. Let me just give you a small taste. He draws near to them in Christ, as we saw with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, who had five husbands, and the one she was living with was not her husband. He draws near to them in Christ, as we saw with the Samaritan woman in John 4. He delivers them from destruction, as we read of Rahab in Joshua 2 and 6. He forgives their sins, like we know from the ex-adulterers now in the church, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6. He washes away their iniquities, as we know from David's own prayer as an adulterer in Psalm 51. He atones for their sins and removes their shame forever, as we learn from Ezekiel 16. He comes to their defense when self-righteous hypocrites snub their noses at them in Luke 7. He he gives them wedding clothes without spot or wrinkle, as, as it says in Revelation 19. He exchanges their ashes for a beautiful headdress and jewels, as we hear the promise of Isaiah 61. And he makes them trophies of his grace in the kingdom as we learn from Ephesians 2. The Bible is replete with examples of how God shows mercy to adulterous and guilty sinners. And He will show mercy to you too if you trust Him. Number three, it's good news. Um, Number three, True holiness that glorifies God is fueled by the power of grace. True holiness that glorifies God is fueled by the power of grace. He says, Jesus says to the woman here, go and sin no more. His word of command to sin no more, though, is is built on the power of grace. Neither do I condemn you. Don't continue in your adultery. Not because you fear shame coming before all these people again, but because I took your eternal shame away by forgiving your sins. The root of grace bears the fruit of grace. We saw that very same thing as Wes exhorted us last week from Titus 3 and showed us very pointedly how those works, the good works we do as Christians flow from a heart that treasures the great things God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Or how about what Paul says in Romans 6, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Or Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So this story may not belong to John's Gospel, but what it illustrates is found plastered everywhere in the Bible. God's law exposes us as guilty sinners Jesus comes to take the punishment in our place. 
and He empowers holy living through the revelation of His grace in Jesus Christ. The psalmist gives us a good summary in Psalm 130, verse 3, and Gary prayed it earlier over us. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That's us standing before God. Law. Guilty. Who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. It's the sending of Jesus into the world as our substitute. With you there is forgiveness. And here's the result. So that you may be feared. So that our entire lives might be devoted to Him and worshiping Him. As we come to the Lord's Supper today, I pray that we would worship God and give Him thanks for preserving His trustworthy Word. He has inspired and taken great care to preserve His trustworthy Word that we might find in it massive assurance about His incalculable mercies in Jesus Christ. The bread we're about to eat and the wine we're about to drink stand as emblems to remember His mercy toward you. Though you've strayed and loved other idols and false gods like an adulterer would stray from her husband. Though your heart is prone to wonder, He has brought you to Himself through grace and He has washed you clean and invited you to sit with Him at His table. Romans 5.8 rings true here. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let us thank Him for His mercy and let's drink with gladness.